Who Cares About Watchmen? Episode 1. It's summer and we're running out of ice. Before we dive into spoilers and a nice hearty discussion of the episode, I think we should very quickly just introduce ourselves and our experiences both with Watchmen and with the showrunner Damon Lindelof first. So, I'm Neo, I'm an Australian who's been an avid fan of the comic Watchmen for over a decade now. And Damon Lindelof, I thought his last show, The Leftovers, was just fantastic, absolutely perfect show. So I had a lot of faith and excitement for the show here. In Giga, who is a Britishman like Alan Moore, the writer of the comic, what is your experiences with both Watchmen and Lindelof, the writer of the show, been? I'd say I'm probably our resident Alan Moore defender. Last few years, I've read a ton of his stuff. And um, I read Watchmen uh, a while back. I sort of read it once, because it was kind of like the requisite thing. And um, I sort of left it a while, but obviously I really liked it. It's a fantastic work. And the, the structural intricacy of it was just a huge deal. Very impressive. And um, as for Lindelof, I watched The Leftovers sort of in the, over the past year and had a really good time with it. Really impressive show. So yeah, I was very much uh, excited and super optimistic about this. And from America, we have Mirrors. I know you like the Watchmen comic, but I'm not sure your thoughts on Lindelof. Do you have any brief thoughts on him to share? Well, I actually am kind of a big fan of his work. I really liked Prometheus. Honestly, I did. And for that matter, I really like Cowboys and Aliens too. <laughs> and I know, I know you think that I'm joking, but... I will actually defend that movie, even though it is utterly indefensible. Okay, that's that's quite the take. Yeah. And lastly, we have Tom Tit, an Australian like me, also a fan of the comic, and just recently watched The Leftovers. How did that affect your expectations for the show? Well, before I got into The Leftovers, which I started pretty much like within the last few months, I had zero interest <laughs> for this show whatsoever because because the trailers were... I wasn't sure what I was actually being sold. Right. And I wasn't sure how it related to the original book or anything, which I first read in my early teens when I sort of didn't really have any uh, understanding of the political context of <laughs> that book. Just cause mm -hmm. you know, I was, you know, just a youngin. Like the formal experimentation of it was what really grabbed me. But yeah, no, watching The Leftovers was kind of like a game changer, you know? <laughs> After I watched that, I was like, yeah, I'm ready for this. Oh yeah. Although it's notable that um, Damon Lindelof was not the only showrunner on The Leftovers. Yes. That was a collab with Tom Perotta. Yes. So this is really my first solo Lindelof television experience. The notable absence there was Lost, which he also showran with another man. Watchmen, he's showrunning alone, so it's new territory for him as well. Uh, before we actually start discussing the episode, I'm just going to very briefly recap it. Of course, we're in spoiler territory now. So the episode opens on the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, a real-world historical event, not part of the alternate history, a real thing that happened. Uh, seen as the worst incident of racial violence in American history. Then we go to the present day, and a member of a white supremacist cult-type organization attacks a police officer, which reignites a war between the police and this culty organization from a few years ago. Then our main character, Angela Abar, aka Sister Knight, suits up, catches a possible member of the white supremacist cult, he gets interrogated, he gets tortured, they manage to get the location they're looking for out of him, then at that location, there's a big fight between the cops and the cult involving turrets and cows and planes and an owl ship, and the cops win. Meanwhile, in somewhere that looks like Wales, Jeremy Irons is touched by the gift of a watch from one of his odd servants. Touched by a bit more than that. <laughs> Back in Tulsa, the police chief leaves to go check on the cop attacked at the start of the episode. He drives off alone to do this. He's caught on the road. Our main character, Sister Knight, gets a mysterious call about him, and she is led to a tree where the police chief's been lynched, and below him there's that boy we saw in the Tulsa race massacre sequence at the start, all very, very, very grown up. So, what did we actually think of the episode? Gig, you go first. What did you think? Okay, um, I, I loved it. <laughs> you know, I thought it was, uh... Like, from the opening seconds, when we have that silent film introduction, like, immediately, you know, it grabbed me. Because right there, you know, we have the kind of the crossing of format, the awareness of kind of the 
different genres and their histories and immediately it was really kind of a, an opening statement in terms of how they're going to work in the racial dynamics and the expectations around those with this idea of sort of masked adventurers and stuff like that and it just and tonally the whole way through it was just weird and strange enough to just appeal to me immensely so I, I had a great time I just really liked it what did our resident American think about the episode man I'm really upset at how much I liked this because I don't feel like I have a whole lot of friction to contribute to the uh, <laughs> dynamic tonight. I I loved it. I and especially now that Gig said all of that, it's just going to sound like I'm repeating it, but more slack jot. It's it it was a lot truer to the text than I was expecting it to be. If I'm being totally honest, I thought, frankly, that it was going to be a bit goofy or a bit snidery, but actually they really are digging into like the sense of the lived-in world and the way that shots are sort of imagery is mirrored from one mm. part to the next. Uh, the headlights going down the road constantly, circles constantly panning around. An airplane starting and finishing the episode. Yeah, yeah, that's a good touch. And plus the trunk. Yes. I thought really interesting. Uh, Tom Tid, what did you think about the premiere? Um, yeah, I'll have to echo everyone else. I loved it. Um, at the same time, I really have no idea what to make of it at this juncture. Like, I could just spend probably an hour just listing questions and things I don't understand about it so far. But um, the thing which really struck me about it was um, how everyone involved in making this has created such like a palpable sense of dread from the get-go. And it's probably like better in that sense than any anything I've seen on TV in, in a while. It's funny you mention that sense of dread because I started feeling that as soon as Lindelof mm -hmm. was announced as the writer. Mm -hmm. as, as far as the lived-in world that Miros was talking about, so kind of the world building, I'm not sure if we're all aware of this, but you know in the original comic how at the end of each issue, each chapter, there's a couple of pages that are like extracts from books or advertising material, uh, back matter pages they call them in comics, which is in the actual comic book, these are vital actual bits. They tie into the story, like you can't skip them. They're part of the experience, um, but they're treated as like details of the alternate history from like extracts of texts. Well, the show is doing something similar uh, on the HBO website. After the first episode, they put up four PDFs that are meant to be like in-universe documents uh, detailing part of the world building. So uh, not all of you guys have heard of this. I can detail some of the stuff. I've, I've, I've read them. I was blown away by them, frankly. I was made aware of the uh, the fact that they were originally planning to do, like, um, post-episode uh, video segments that were uh, within the universe, yeah. but still sort of reflect, like, how you know, Game of Thrones operated yeah. towards the end. It reminds me of um, Lost used to have, like, this alternate reality games. But anyway, uh, the actual back matter material for the episode, the first thing was... Uh, an FBI memo about computers and that was just detailing how at the ending of the original comic which you don't need to have read to watch the show but obviously it's building off where a giant squid materialized in New York killed millions world peace ensued because everyone was so scared of the aliens together spoilers dude <laughs> uh, it's detailing how after that um, everyone went kind of Luddite because uh, Dr. Manhattan, you know, the blue superhuman godly figure who absconded from Earth at the end of the comic, the technology he was making with the other superhero, Ozymandias, everyone thought it gave you cancer because the word was Dr. Manhattan gave you cancer if you were around him. Manhattan energies, which was fake news. It was all orchestrated. You can read about this in the comic, but people don't know that. And so there was like a technological pushback to technology after the fear of the squid and the fear of Manhattan energies. So that's, you know, the watch stuff in the episode, how the 7th Cavalry uh, were getting the old watch batteries, uh, which are from like when people were fine with Manhattan and Ozymandias' technology. And so this FBI memo was trying to say, yeah, yeah, this was like saying we should use computers again. They're really useful, but everyone was totally spooked by computers after the events of the comic. The second thing was just like a Tulsa cinema Tom, Tom Tit would like this very much like a Kino art newsletter thing and it was about Bass Reeves who we see at the very start of the episode he's the uh the hero that uh gets the lawman that's done the town wrong at the start who was a real guy he was the first black US deputy marshal west of the Mississippi he arrested 
yeah, the original Lone Ranger. He arrested 3,000 felons, he shot 14 people in self-defense. Inspiration for the very white character, the Lone Ranger. Uh, yeah, the masked black crime fighter we saw at the start. He, he stopped the mob from killing him, he just captured him non-lethally. Uh, just dressed like a, he's dressed like Hooded Justice. We'll get, yeah, we're definitely going to get to that um, <laughs> Hooded Justice note soon, because there's so much to talk about there. Um, and the other two things were that Vite declared dead newspaper article and an FBI report saying, please don't declare Vite dead. And the report saying, don't declare Vite dead was saying, if you give this finality, it's going to set off all these people that hate Vite, like the 7th Cavalry, the Rorschach worshippers, um, because they hate Vite. They think he was behind Rorschach's death and all that. Um, details from those two documents. The Night Owl II, Dan Dryberg from the comic, was arrested after nine years of superheroing around with Laurie Blake, the comedian, the feminine form of the comedian. This is actually what she was called, who is a character we're going to meet in the third episode. Uh, nobody really believed Rorschach's journal that Ozymandias was behind the squid and everything, besides very right-wing conspiracy kooks. Uh, Veidt's been missing since 2012, where another company bought out Veidt Industries. People assume he was assassinated or something. Veidt's new perfume and stuff bombed very hard that he tried to make about a new technological age because everyone went Luddite instead. Uh, and Veidt was behind Redford, President Redford, getting seven terms because he kept donating shitloads of money in the 80s and 90s for a democratic blue wave. But in the end, <laughs> Redford, trying presumably not to be corrupt, passed a law diminishing donations and apparently Veidt and Redford stopped getting on because Veidt was annoyed he couldn't lobby government so much anymore <laughs> and yeah so that's all the extra material we got in the back matter stuff what are your thoughts on all that kind of thing uh you're forgetting elvis being alive i did forget oh, elvis. yeah 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 uh um truly a strange touch big pardon uh it's um talking about if adrian veidt suddenly reappears then um basically the fbi will look like idiots for declaring him dead and they basically say you remember what happened a couple years back when elvis Presley walked into a bar in Vietnam, yeah. and this is, this is real, and he sings like a medley of all of his songs that have blue in the title, which turned out to be did you Speaking of Vietnam, did you notice the name of the bakery of our main character, Sister Knight? Milk and Milk Hanoi. And Hanoi. Yeah. Amazing. I just wanted to say that um, Elvis doing a medley of all songs with blue in the title, for some reason that made me think of like, did Dr. Manhattan bring Elvis back to life for some reason? Does he have some kind of mm. like motive for that? Blue is the clue. It's blue's clues. Well, it's such a biz that is such a bizarre fucking... I'm sorry, that's just such a fucking ridiculous plot point. I love it. I love it. I mean, there's I mean, there's other crazy stuff in those. Like they mentioned um, that Nixonvilles are a like recurring phenomenon. Like lots of people who are angry at Redford and like love Nixon have now made these little enclaves, like little Nixonvilles, apparently around the the country or whatever. Anyway, that's not what I was going to say. Um, the impression I got from those documents is that. Um, rather than necessarily fixing the world, it seems like the squid scheme has actually had the consequence of making the world go a bit crazy. Like, because um, this whole thing of, like, this whole thing of having um, a, an apparent extra-dimensional alien attack, that has caused everyone to think, oh my god, you know, you know, our, our entire sense of reality has been uh, thrown upside down. What could have caused this? Was it the, the computers? Was it this? You know, shut everything down. And that's just kind of, it, it's just... It's created this complete, like, adjunct from reality that everyone's now laboring under. So it's like, I think it makes sense for the tone of the TV show to be a bit, uh, a little bit madder and weirder than the comic was. And that's the impression I kind of get. I think the TV show seems a bit more openly silly. I think the book was a bit more reserved with its silliness. Yeah, like, right in the book, you never see him having anything done, like, you know, naked pat-downs and horseshoes and uh, all that well, sort of Wait, 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 wait. You, way more you think Jeremy Irons was right? Dun, dun, dun. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> Interesting. I, okay, I'm, if he's not Viat, I'm going to riot, I swear to God. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know any spoilers or anything. Like, my guesses are as good as yours, but I, I think he's Dr. Manhattan because he's very pointedly not named or anything. And we see that castle he rode into is the exact same castle we see Manhattan create on Mars. He writes a play about Dr. Manhattan, the watchmaker's son. He gets very touched by getting the gift of a watch uh, from his servant. 
His servants seem like synthetics or genetically engineered or something. They seem really off. And remember, at the end of the comic, Dr. Manhattan says he wants to create new life. And it seems like it'd be very Lindelofy to trick us like this. However, his personality is nothing like <laughs> Dr. Manhattan at all. And he is pretty Ozymandias. So it could be misdirection. The number, the number one reason that I think they probably right is because that is how it goes in the source material of this television program, uh, Doomsday Clock. <laughs> <laughs> for, for clarification, Doomsday Clock is another sequel to Watchmen the comic, except it's... No, a... no, you can't say for clarification. <laughs> it does not clarify anything. There are two sequels to Watchmen going on right now. And they have nothing to do with each other. They have nothing to do with each other, and yet they are the same story. So I think it's somewhat generous to say that Doomsday Clock is going on in any meaningful sense. It's been delayed so much, it's practically at a standstill. Over yeah. at DC Comics, Jeff Johns is a <laughs> person, and he is writing this sequel to Watchmen about all the DC characters like Superman and Batman and all that interacting, and this whole thing about uh, this reputation of... Oh, it's, it's its own thing. The show is Damon Lindelof's sequel. It's about Superman punching Dr. Manhattan in the fucking face. <laughs> yeah. It is. Yeah. As vengeance for DC reaching their comics universe. <laughs> it's extremely tasteful. I, I think, I think actually, um, just the last note on Doomsday Clock to kind of stress what kind of story it is in comparison to this Watchmen TV show is my understanding is the general premise is that the previous wave of DC comics for the last couple of years were so grimdark and edgy because they were the life Dr. Manhattan was making or something, and Watchmen yes. was edgy, and Jeff Johns wants to make comics not edgy, so he's saying all the edgy comics were literally from the Watchmen characters, and now we're yes. going back to... <sighs> Just as a segue back to the show, I mean, Doomsday Clock is a black Rorschach, doesn't it? And so does the show, because Sister Knight, I maintain, is by far the closest character we have to Rorschach and I've got a few reasons for this one is we get a direct reference when she's torturing that guy and we get that swinging door thing with direct visual reference to a Rorschach scene and oh, yeah. in the trailer she talks about how the world is just black and white which is literally Rorschach's thing it's you know exemplified on his face well his mask that he calls his face she's very uncompromising she's the main character which I think you can argue about the main character of the comic, but I think in terms of narrative function, it's definitely Rorschach. Yeah, and her, her visits to Nixon Villa are a little bit like Rorschach's visits to Happy Harry's in the novel. Um, you know, in the in the book, Rorschach is the one who's insisting there's you a mask killer conspiracy that has to be unraveled. And in this episode, we see Angela arguing to Judd that you know yeah. some shit might be going on, you know something bigger might be happening, and Judd's like, uh, whatever, you know, yeah, I'm worried. <laughs> so it seems like she might be in that Rorschach role of having to solve the mystery. So um, I, I really liked um, Angela pretty much as soon as she was introduced in that classroom scene and she started going on this extended um, d elaboration on how the horrific details of how she was shot and she had to have a bullet removed from her. She had to be interrupted. Um, I, that's, that's, I, just, I really like a little bit of characterization like that where a character just starts behaving very strangely in a way that causes you to ask all kinds of questions about what's going on with them. I was, I was fist pumping when she said she's from Vietnam because that's one of my favorite little details from the comics how vietnam became a state and i really wanted the show to address that and kind of do some world building around that so i was so happy that she's uh from vietnam i think that's going to be really really important yeah because um do you know the name of the the company that bought adrian Veidt's estate i don't know how to pronounce it either it's like yeah true industries which is like the um well basically just like the idea of um lady true being this um historical figure of like She's called the Vietnamese Joan of Arc by someone, I don't know. But basically oh, wow. the story is she okay. she was fighting off like um Chinese occupation way back when in, in Vietnam. So um I think oh, there's shit. an obvious tie to like American occupation of Vietnam in the twenty nineteen yeah. Watchmen. It got that, me thinking why... about like what does Vi actually want to change in the world um in twenty nineteen? And I thought like maybe yeah. it could be the occupation of Vietnam. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure because White isn't in the show. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> the man in the high castle. <laughs> that's, that's a good term for him. You know, also, he might be uh, just in some kind of mind palace created by Dr. Manhattan, and that's why the castles match up. It could well yeah. be playing White, but there's something going I, on I, there. 
my impression of it, because that's all I get from this episode is impressions, but I thought that, like, Veidt is trying to provoke Manhattan somehow, like, similarly to the way he did in the novel. Like, that's why he's writing a play about him. Maybe he's trying to misrepresent him or, like, make a point about him, and Manhattan is maybe reacting to that. But it could go in any direction. Did you assume his servants were clones of Janie Slater and John Osterman, Dr. Manhattan? Because I thought that was pretty intuitive. I didn't pick that up. Uh... This is clones, purely because they have black hair. Yes, clones possibly of uh, some sort of genetic or synthetic engineering. Mm. He, you know, he had a, a pet cat that was a, a complete, completely unique province back in the, what was that eighty six of the comic set. Yeah, I think it's possible that they are. Uh, I don't know people that whoever this man is created. Mm. But it's, it, yeah, I do think there is something to the idea that it might be Ozymandias trying to uh, trying to provoke uh, Doctor Manhattan, perhaps by creating his own life. Yeah, because Doctor Manhattan ends the comic saying, "I'm off to create my own life," but Ozymandias is there when he says that, and Ozymandias likes to one up people, and I, he's got a real idol fixation, and I'm sure you know part of that's directed at Doctor Manhattan. This is also why I think he might be trying to. Uh, Dr. Manhattan himself, you know, to a degree. Like, he's writing a play and he's getting the watch. I think he might be trying to mantle this role, perhaps literally in future episodes, because, you know, that's what he did with Alexander the Great. I could see him thinking, you know, if my plans aren't working so much, what, you know, John got blown apart by this subatomic, what's it? Can I do the same thing to myself and get his powers? Because Dr. Manhattan being on Mars feels weird to me. At the end of the comic, he left like for another galaxy to go create new life elsewhere. Why would he just go so close to home, to Mars? So maybe that blue guy on Mars isn't even Manhattan. It's Aussie Manhattan. Dr. Mars. (laughs) (laughs) If I keep keep throwing theories at the wall, one of them is going to stick, I swear. Speaking of theories... We mentioned that Ozzy, uh, we mentioned Ozymandias's cat, right? I just want to say on the re- the reread of the book I did at the weekend, okay, I I um, came to the bit uh, I think in the in the last chapter where Ozymandias tries to get rid of Manhattan by putting him back in the intrinsic field subtractor, and Babastis the cat gets caught up in it, and that just puts me onto this idea that maybe 33 years later, or however many years later, Babastis is gonna kind of uh, re-emerge as a, a disembodied nervous system somewhere, and then just be like the the god cat, like the Doctor Cat Hatton, you know, Doctor Manhattan. <laughs> so maybe that maybe that's the key to the show. You know, there's a new Manhattan and it's it's feline. Oh my god! Oh my god! What if what if you both right? What if it's not Ozymandias <laughs> and it's not Doctor Manhattan? It is in fact Bubastis in a humanoid body. That's that why amazing. that's why the butler doesn't know how to cut a cake, and for that matter, that's why uh, he only wants to take a single, you know, taste of it. It's because he's a cat. There is a line in one of the um one of the extra documents that HBO put out after the show, which suggests that Ozymandias um and Bubastis they have some sort of intimate like bond. It, do you get what I'm saying? Uh, no. Huh? <laughs> Are you saying that he like jumped into Bubastis's body, like or transferred <laughs> their consciousness? Yeah, he he air quotes jumps into Bubastis's body. This is the right wing New Frontiersman is suggesting that him and Bubastis have. So there might be some genetic like mixing going on there. If you, if you oh, mean. human cat hybrids. Is that so we're just yes. turning into series two of Doctor Who now, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> Do you get the impression that all this Jeremy Irons stuff is like like the rest of the show? I totally agree with the writers that uh, none readers of the comic or watchers of the movie or whatever can totally like we're all meant to feel lost and on the back foot from this episode. That's cool. You know, I think everyone's mostly on the same foot, apart from little world-building things. But the Jeremy Irons scenes feel to me like this is very much like us comic readers are saying, oh, it could be this character, it could be this character, it's connected to this thing in the comic. I wonder how non-comic readers are reacting to the Jeremy Irons stuff, which must just seem so kind of adrift, interestingly, without that knowledge. Yeah. It must basically just be like, it, it must come off to newbies like, you know, Lynchian randomness, mustn't it? Like when the guy, off, when uh, Mr. Crookshanks or Mr. Phillips offers him a horseshoe, you know, it's like, he, it's, it's just, it just seems like these kind of completely abstract kind of circular. 
Yeah, yeah, Dougie Jones, or something else you could compare it to, um, Audrey in season three. She's in this her own little enclosed kind of yeah. scenario, isn't she? It doesn't really cross over with the rest of the show. Like, it must seem like something really weird like that and disembodied. Maybe it is. We don't know. That's the thing. We That's still don't know. And the world of Watchmen is wild and weird enough that it could be something strange and esoteric like that. But, that being said, I don't think that it's a very useful show to watch if you've never read the book or never seen the movie. Yeah, I'd, I don't th- it's not a gatekeeping thing. It's just, uh, like, I think the show presumably will work. Like, HBO wouldn't greenlight something that just people that watched a Zack Snyder movie 10 years ago or just people that read a comic, albeit, like, the biggest, most famous, best one. You know, like, this is... This is a show, I think Lindelof described it as, uh, not for the masses, what did he say? For the stadiums, for the arenas, compared to The Leftovers, which was for, you know, the dive bars, the rooms where only three people can fit in. So, yeah, I, I do, the comic, I think saying the comic helps is misguided because it makes it sound like work. The comic is brilliant and the show hopefully will be brilliant. Why not have two brilliant things in your life? Gig? Yes. Do you have any uh, theories you want to share? Oh, uh, uh, oh, you asked me to share my my theory. Theory. Yes. Okay. Um. Well, okay. Um. Well. Uh. Right. Okay. So. Um. We. I was. I was talking with Neo about um that mystery old man who uh, kind of summons Angela and who we see as a child at the beginning of the episode and I was kind of wondering like well, uh, could it be? Okay. This is going to sound like a total reach at the moment, but um. Uh, could it be that this guy was at some point some some iteration of hooded justice could it be that you know is that first scene essentially his superhero origin story and at some point prior to becoming an old man could he have been a hood wearing superhero now before you before you before you go after me and say hang on gig in the comic we can clearly see that hooded justice is a white dude okay you can see but you can see the little uh, rings around his eyes or whatever and also they mentioned that he might be a nazi as well that kind of uh right my first I need to get my thoughts in order here. My, my first thought before being reminded of those facts is that maybe the original inspiration for the Hooded Justice costume revolves around the clan and the idea of appropriating the iconography of the clan hood and the lynch noose into some sort of like anti kind of racist kind of vigilante costume. But then obviously that wouldn't really make sense if it was um, some white dude or whatever doing it. So it wouldn't be, it wouldn't really be appropriative. So that had me wondering, I don't know, maybe, maybe a black guy did it first and then some white guy stole his idea and did it. And there were two hooded justices. <laughs> that's, well, like, that's the thing. Uh, like I, yeah, it's getting, a, it's getting a bit convoluted at this point. I, I, have I to think be said. Yeah, if you focus less on the specific details and we think more in the broader things like the show is pushing hooded justice a lot on that fake show in a show and on the posters and things and the start the bass reeves like movie this is you can totally see how this would play into a hooded justice origin he's literally by a lynch and all that stuff at the very end of the episode and, and like appropriation the is the big theme of the show like everyone keeps saying this and it's clear in the episode appropriating you know something appropriating a clan hood or you know even the idea of lynching that feels very uh, I won't say Lynchian, I'll say Lindelofian. <laughs> you know what, uh, um, I might be misremembering this, because it's been about three years, I think, since the last time I read the book, uh, and is there a part in the book where they discuss the possibility that there's another Hooded Justice? Because when Giggs said that, I felt like, oh yeah, they, that was something in the book, there's, wasn't it? There's not a point where they think there's two, but there's a point in Hollis Mason, the first Night Owl's uh, like tell-all under the hood, where he's guessing who Hooded Justice was, and he's not totally settled. And so the idea of different people could be Hooded Justice yeah. is kind of in that. There is some ambiguity to you know the origin of Hooded Justice and who the guy is, and um one one, yeah, and one cope thing that I've been using is that um it it's possible that the person who joined the Minutemen as Hooded Justice might not actually be the first person who was sighted wearing a hood. You know, there could be more than one person. Like a night owl saying. situation. Yeah. Oh, sp- speaking of night owl, uh, I totally think Don Johnson, the dead police chief, was the third night owl because he had that owl mug and he had under the hood the that book I was just talking about from the first night owl and he had an owl ship so mm-hmm. yeah I'm not married to that but yeah 
they put um they showed that photo of him as a kid with his dad and i feel like we're gonna get childhood flashbacks of judd and maybe if, if uh, putting aside this the theory that he's a um, you know night owl or whatever at the moment it could be maybe he's just a big fan <laughs> i feel like we'll get yeah. some insight into what were his kind of what were his interests or pathologies over his life and maybe this fascination with uh, the night owls might be one of them hence his own mm-hmm. owl cups and stuff yeah because he's like the same age as dan like he's around 70 which is what dan's age would be and remember dan's in federal prison that's what the hbo documents revealed so i'm not sure if he was really night owl 3 but yeah certainly a fan and he has the owl ship or at least a replica of it which is just confounding yeah the mug and the ship sort of made me think that like maybe dan is secretly consulting with the police but not only am i not married to that theory i'm barely on speaking terms with it but yeah, at the very least, they're possibly, like, stealing Dan's inventions or, like, you know, they went through his house and got all of his blueprints and shit or whatever. Speaking of Don Johnson, who's obviously mirroring the comedian from the comic who is the character murdered at the start and that sets off the investigation into a conspiracy and we get lots of flashbacks about how he connected with the other characters and stuff, I assumed at the end... Because notice he went alone. He told his wife, I'll get another cop to drive me. I've had a bit to drink mm-hmm. for safety or whatever. And then he went alone. That's very suspicious to me. He went alone when he heard the cop shot at the start, woke up. Yeah. Was he going to put him back to sleep for some yeah. reason? That's what I thought for sure. Until he died. He also had this like, there's a really noticeable grimace on his face. Like yeah. he was practically telegraphing yeah. that he had sinister intentions. Mm. And I mean, this is Nash Bridges we're talking about. <laughs> and you know who wrote for Nash Bridges? You should check his IMDb page to find out. <laughs> are, are, are you gonna elaborate? Can I get in a lab? Damon Lindelof. Wow. For Nash oh. Bridges, it comes full circle. Yeah, just like the the way he sort of forlornly puts his uniform on, it made me think like he really wants to be found in that uniform like it's a statement that he was being hanged Mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah, actually yeah it did seem maybe possibly that he was prepared to not come back from wherever he was going there was something a bit funereal about it and i might be wrong it might be he's just going off to kill someone but maybe he maybe he didn't maybe he wasn't sure he would come back alive i don't know yeah so um what do you think that weird light was immediately before he got there's like this weird kind of wish light that zooms across the screen and then we cut away i'm just wondering like could it It be like flickering wasn't it something like that yeah it was yeah it was flickering as well i i know i kind of i framed pause and went through it i'm just wondering could that be dr dr mancatton come to get him or something <laughs> could be could be uh some kind of, what i thought of was um how sometimes in sci-fi and um crime dramas they'll treat you know hypnosis as something that you can just do with a flashing light what if that's somebody's old superpower box light thing that they used to fight crime back in the 70s and now it's been reappropriated to trap this cop hmm. hypnosis is an interesting angle hypnosis feels very relevant to what this show is doing i think because like you got looking glass's entire shtick feels very brainwashing oh that was great yeah, yeah. i loved that and, um, modern update of the rorschach tests with the pod Let's not forget, psychics are real in this in this world, in this universe, because you've got the whole psychic brain shockwave and shit. So that there might very much be a thing. Hey, is her uh, um, is the uh, kid psychic? I wasn't actually able to tell. There's something going on there. I think. Oh, do you mean Topher? Are you are you basing this on the fact that he could tell his mum wanted to hit that other kid? Is that it? is that who you are you referring that from? Not exclusively. Huh? There was also a weird point where he touches the windshield while there's a squid on top of it, and the squid like moves around. I don't know. It was it was an odd scene, and I thought, oh, this psychic kid. With the squid, I don't think the kid. I don't think Topher dissolved the squid or anything there. I think with the squid, I think yeah, I think the, all the squids that fall from the sky, it seems like they basically melt and dissolve into water as soon as they land. And I think that is a, I think that is um, an after effect of the teleportation process. They mention in the HBO uh, back matter that the prime squid back in the day at the end of the book, that one also kind of dissolved after it landed. And um, Oz, yeah, and Ozymandias does say that like the, you can't teleport stuff without it being sort of basically going splat as soon as it arrives. So I think that's something to do with all that. And also they don't want it to stick around because then like scientists can, you know, analyze it and do all their shit to it. To be yeah. fair, psychic kid, that's not a bad theory, you know, <laughs> it, might, it might come true. Notice all the kids were white. Mm-hmm. Mm. Ish. 
wonder if there's some sort of uh, adoption thing going on that's got racial dynamics to it, stemming from the whole history of the town or something. I don't know what's going on there. In a lot of ways, there seems to be this sort of, in this kind of present of the show, there seems to be this, uh, not not exactly inversion, but sort of um, a shake-up of how, like, of how, of white people's role in the world. Like, you had that whole traffic stop sequence at the start with kind of the, dy- dy- the roles kind of reversed, with the white person really nervously <laughs> putting his hands on the steering wheel and stuff and getting kind of, like, kind of browbeaten by this overbearing black cop. And it just seems like that, that this, this whole thing, it's like... Um, in possibly in the reviews or the previews or whatever, like the, the comparison was raised that the show is depicting kind of the liberal dystopia of every racist's worst nightmares. It's kind of this like this endless liberal regime. It's like you need to wait you know, six months to buy a gun. Yeah, yeah, it's like, and it's like when Obama was president, you have the conservatives game, like, he's going to bring a thousand years of liberal darkness. Well, in this timeline, Robert Redford has brought 30 years of, like, liberal dominance or whatever. So it's like, I don't know how many years it is, but it's it's a long time. Yeah. Reparations for uh, Tulsa, um, black people in Tulsa. Yeah. Yeah, the restrictions on the gun are literally what gets the police officer killed. It's like a very strange statement. Yeah, and we have that panda guy who seems to be very stringent about not like not um being willy nilly with the guns. He kind of I like he, panda. Yeah, he has he has a go at Judge for kind of authorizing uh, full weapons usage because he's gonna it's gonna kickstart the war again. He seems he seems quite anti gun on the whole on the whole thing. Mm-hmm. On what his deal is. What do you think of these reparations in the show? Oh, I was gonna say good idea. See, I think I get the impression that what the show might possibly be doing i mean certainly the show seems well i'm partially going off comments that lindelof has made here but i think the perspective of the show towards this whole regulatory sort of liberals in government doing their best to try and like make everything nice and safe and stuff and very sort of like sort of like putting band-aids on everything and stuff i get the sense the show is somewhat critical of that and with the um these retrodations somewhat being a part of that like you can throw you can throw money at a problem per se you can help black people like compete in a market or whatever but you've still got this kind of capitalist situation you've still got you know you've got the envy that comes from that you've still got this market that's fundamentally unfair like you haven't actually you haven't actually like uh, cured the problem at the heart of the society you've just sort of like you've tried to sort of balance the, 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 the scales a little bit and whereas Lindelof's quite odd response to this is the idea that we should balance out Democrats with Republicans or whatever and have <laughs> some conservative influence on government it seems like the more the more pressing statement that's coming out perhaps unintentionally is that you need to actually go a lot further than say robert redford is going in terms of reforming society Mm. it's interesting that in you know that big article that a couple of years ago kicked Mm -hmm. off you know reparations in the discourse one of the actual arguments raised in that is that would erase white guilt because it's like we gave all this money to black people which will societally and like culturally alleviate white people feeling guilty about you know racism or events like the Tulsa massacre in the past and I just find that a really uh odd like fascinating argument to make in favor of them like that Mm. the argument for giving all these black people money is so white people don't feel weird around that, that seems people. a bit that seems a bit dangerous to me almost because if like it, certainly it might get rid of any sort of sense of lingering guilt but like that it wouldn't necessarily get rid of like the resentment like it seems like what would happen there is that oh well oh we well we fixed racism we gave you all your money so you know you can't even yeah. complain anymore <laughs> it's like that just to, um to to clarify clarify for any listeners the article that we're referring to is um the case for reparations by tana hisi coates it's kind of it's a bit old for now but yeah it came it, out. it's a fascinating read on uh, whatever your situation on um reparations is because it's, 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 it's kind of like the article on it it's more of a, it's kind of kind of a history of injustice against sort of african-americans over the course of like the, the century with the yeah, tulsa it's... race massacre being a prominent feature and even though uh even though Coates is of course a Marvel writer and this is a DC property it's still very relevant to the discussion yeah because the point in it is um it wasn't just events like the Tulsa massacre of 1921 that like white people have to feel sorry for like as recently as now there are you know active institutional things that have negative effects on you know black people's ability to um, compete financially and all that kind of thing uh, but speaking of the Tulsa Massacre, what did we think of that opening sequence? Um, that riff on Superman's origin, I should say. 
Yeah, that was really extreme. I thought the music was fantastic. Like, yes. I just love the those, those like stabbing kind of synths and stuff like that. Actually, it reminded me of it reminded me of a Hideo Kojima game a little bit. But um, I, just, I thought um, <laughs> that whole sequence, yeah, it was just deeply unsettling. I was I was, yeah. I was surprised at the brutality of it. Honestly, just showing people just get shot down in the in cold blood and stuff. It was really really brutal. I love that um, the effect I'm seeing in like the reception online to this was everyone thinking, whoa, this is messed up as part of the alternate history that the rest of the episode is all about. And then Googling it and, oh shit, this was completely, yeah. not, this is, this is, this bit's real. This bit completely happened and it's just very, it's not well taught. Uh, the Superman thing I thought was really interesting because it's, um, how do we, it's chaotic exploding world, let's say. Um, parents put their baby on a transportation thing out to try and save him. Uh, was that it? Like, and a little, they put a little and... message saying, watch over this boy as well. Yeah. Just like as a sign, whoever finds the boy, she kind of needs to kind of take him in like the, the kids yeah. do with, you know, soups and whatever. And, and we think this may have been the first superhero in this world, which was Hooded Justice. So it's all, all very interesting. There's something, there's something to be said for taking that kind of that sort of sci-fi kind of fantasy mythos or whatever and just bringing it right down and grounding it in the actual real-life circumstances, like the, the actual real-life analogue of that. And kind of, because it's like, you know, we don't need to kind of make up an, another, another planet to tell this story. This sort of stuff actually happens. Yeah, and I love the, the just the contrast of like the the movie, the um, anti-Birth of a Nation, mm -hmm. uh, Trust mm -hmm. in the Law, it was called. The juxtaposition juxtaposition of that sort of like nice sort of pacifying story with like the reality which is happening outside which is that like there's a very real danger yeah and it's interesting because at the end of the episode we get the judd position of that with how judd mm. is the white um police chief that yeah you know you know what i'm saying your standards yeah. for wordplay decline further and further every day <laughs> it has to be said milk and hanoi inspired me that that's all i'm going off <laughs> I love the final shot of the drop of blood on the sheriff's badge. It's such a such it's such a brazen statement, isn't it? Like this isn't your grandma's watchman. We're doing. I wasn't, this. <laughs> We're doing I wasn't even expecting it. I was just. Am I trying to? I was trying to read something on the badge, thinking what's it trying to say, and then the blood dropped in the exact thing of the smiley that is the watchman symbol and the icon that starts off the comic. Amazing. It was pleasant. Uh, it was a little obvious, but in a in a good way. It's you know, here it is. You're watching Watchmen. Although. Uh, there was other parts uh, earlier that also visually referred back to that, but I'm having trouble remember them, remembering the precise ones. I feel like uh, at least once we see that same basic shape in uh, Looking Glass's mask. Yeah, a lot of shapes in Looking Glass's mask, don't we? <laughs> How yeah, was that yeah, done? But was I mean, this the... digitally um, done, his mask reflections? Like, what was going on there? It looked amazing. That was impressive. It seems the show has its equivalent of cool Rorschach mask effect in Looking yeah. Glass's mirror mask and the way in which that creates this kaleidoscope of whatever he's looking at is so fucking cool. Like, I love the shot, like the, the Nazi swastikas when they're in the pod and they all kind of yeah. kind of sw swarming over his face. It just looks so cool. Yeah, yeah, I imagined you'd love that. <laughs> Speaking of um, cool Rorschach masks, I was howling at the um, speech of the 7th Cavalry that yes. the police were watching, which is... Reappropriating, <laughs> yeah, reappropriating some famous Rorschach journal lines from the comic, which Rorschach is kind of poetic and lyrical in the comic. Like he's not the most well-spoken chap, but he's got a certain lilt, you know, and method to his words that are that's certainly appealing. And they're just inserting these weird modern bits into it, like liberal tears and the time for retribution, blah blah blah. Oh, and that it's, time is near. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's exactly the sort of thing that you read on TV every fucking day. Yeah. And fittingly, this is also a bunch of masked anonymous people wearing, you know, costumes based on an Alan Moore comic. Oh, yeah, yeah, V for Vendetta, of course. Oh, Sorry, yeah. it took me a second. Good, good yeah. It took me a few seconds to... Yeah. Yeah. I love the, the just the crudeness of how they've rewritten Rorschach's kind of text. And just, the, just, it just yeah. made me laugh so much. It's just it's just ridiculous, but great. I, I Possibly having them literally say liberal tears might have been a bit on the nose. But, like, you know, it, it's fun. And I like that they're not kind of... I like that it's impossible to mistake that for actual Rorschach dialogue there. Like, it, it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't even grammatically... The, the time is near... I just, oh god, that was just great. In the original comic, uh, in a fairly early re-release, Alan Moore has an author's note where he's talking about writing Rorschach. He was committed he could not strawman this character at all. This character had to be written completely 
um, with dignity, I guess you could say. So conservatives absolutely can latch onto this character and idolize him. And that's the point. Moore isn't trying to, um, you know, unduly stereotype. He's trying to just, all these ideologies have their place in the comic and, you know, the reader projects onto them and agrees with which, whichever one they will. But in the show, using a term like liberal tears, I don't feel that dedication <laughs> to um objectivity, kind of, if you know, mm. like, that's very much a uh, liberal, wrote the liberal tears, Ryan. Same time, as much as, as much as um Moore treats Rorschach with a lot of dignity and makes him kind of you you feel bad for him at various points. You know he has he's human he's got humanity. Um, you've also got stuff like in the back matter of the comic, you've got pages from the New Frontiersman, which lampoons the whole like, conservative rhetorical style quite savagely. I think, and all the kind of propaganda phrases, all the commie Marxist left wing Russian loons and stuff, all of that gets kind of kind of used and deployed. And then you've got that wonderful parody of conservative political cartoons the crying statue of liberty in the corner and stuff so um I, I don't think i don't think the book is completely free of um of uh maybe a bit of bias <laughs> where it comes to sort of uh, that sort of stuff but like yeah no i i do i do agree i do see where you're coming from the, the book politically i think yeah there's stuff like that but as far as the characters i think they really do try and make them three-dimensional and like rorschach is treated i think with a lot of humanity even like rorschach is a racist you go back and you read these monologues and actually pay attention to what he's saying because the movie cut a lot of these lines which i think is the heart of some of the pushback here but uh, he's a racist he's a misogynist you know all these things that said you know part of the complication of the comic is he's very much the hero in some ways you know he's narratively positioned as this a lot of the time he mm -hmm. he's a complicated character and you know this is the appeal we shouldn't the people that idolize him are obviously reading the comic in a certain way that people can find silly or misguided but the point is kind of the projection and how people can appropriate it. It's is it even appropriation? It's just people interpreting him differently, I suppose. And so it's interesting in the show to see this whole theme of reappropriation of the character. It's such a lovely meta thing how it ties in. This is what the show is doing to the comic. Yeah. It's reappropriating it to tweak it a little and then tell a new, completely different story. You know, and that, the appeal of the show to me so far is from the first scene. It's got all these things on its mind that aren't from the comic. These are new themes. And it's evolving the comic to tell these things, which is so much more in the spirit of what the comic was doing than just doing a story again about, like, a mutually assured destruction thing or whatever. Are any of you familiar with the musical Oklahoma? Because I'm not. I got some kind of stuff about, like, um, Don Johnson's character. He seemed to feel like some kind of um, flippant, like, he looks down on black Oklahoma, which he downplays. It's not an overt thing, but, like, he said, oh, their heart's not in it. And he's pretty much jealous because he was the main character of Oklahoma when he was a boy. I took that as yeah. basically to mean like him as a white dude. He feels like some ownership over Oklahoma and he like resents this black Oklahoma. And there's that ominous sign on the street which says like black Oklahoma final performance. I think that's a very like, that's an omen for sure. They um, they mentioned he played the good guy in Oklahoma when he was younger, and yet he shares the name of the bad guy in Oklahoma. Yes. He's called you know, Judd, and they kind of they flag that up with the song lyrics playing at the end over his you know his corpse. You know, poor Judd is dead. So I'm just, I, there, there seems to be something going on there. Like maybe yeah, there seems to be maybe that is suggesting that there are two sides to this guy. Oh yeah, he was snorting something at the dinner table. Oh yeah, yeah that, was, that was definitely yeah. I wonder, is it just coke, or could it be some new, weird, kind of alt-history drug? Like, maybe, maybe it's like, maybe nostalgia is now a drug that you take instead of a perfume. I see that. Oh, wow. I would... Nostalgia's are like the perfume, uh, cologne and all that from the original comic that suited oh, the 80s, where they were wistfully looking of, back on times. unforgettable playing during that was great. Oh, perfect, perfect. <laughs> the music in this we could probably go on about for an hour and a half on its own little thing i know um i noticed um with the uh, the rorschach guys the cavalry with them um they were ripping the watch batteries out of those watches and just struck me that the image of ripping apart a watch quite savagely is a bit like the inverse of the stuff we got in the comic with beautifully assembling a watch and all its intricacies oh, yeah. so with this um with this um imagery of people kind of ripping the watches apart it's a bit like a like a statement of intent isn't it like we're, we're taking it apart we're pulling mm -hmm. it down yeah you know on the topic of these batteries my understanding is they never caused cancer. The stuff that was causing cancer was Ozymandias, I think, putting mm. something in the gas or something to these people. He exposed to them to radiation, yeah. Yeah. So these batteries are fine, which is so comedian, comedian style. It's such a yeah. dark joke that all this fuss over cancer-causing technology, is, it was completely fine. No one had to stop using it. 
one more thing. Um, they showed Dollar Bill on the wall of that um, Nixonville guy's house or whatever. And I just, is, is that? I wonder if that's gonna. Is it gonna link to the banks and stuff like that? Are we gonna get a more fina- financial angle and stuff in the rest of the plot? Because that seems like an interesting direction. The Dollar Bill was such a minor part of the original. Comic. Yeah. Um. So what he was part of the first group of superheroes in the 30s and 40s, the Minutemen, and he the the banks. Um, made a superhero because they wanted like a marketing thing so they just got this guy to dress up and go pretend to fight crime and then fight some actual crime or whatever because his cape got snagged in the door yeah and the, <laughs> the, the robbers shot him I thought yeah. I thought that was very like Angela looks over at that poster and she sort of realises in that moment that she's sort of wearing the face of the enemy you know she's a tool mm-hmm. of the state which yeah, is I think kind of what Lindelof is going for with the whole thing is that like these reparations the um the majority black police force it's all kind of like a mechanism to contain black people yes. you know absolutely which which is why um the framing of that the scene where the seventh cavalry talks to the police station it's sort of framed like you have that big screen overlooking the hall and all this negative space in the middle it's kind of like the police are all the like they're an unwilling audience to the cavalry and then you cut to the reverse angle and it has this sign it says um in the service of others that's like the police motto in the service of others which is makes me think like, you know, all these all these um, black police officers they're not they're not part of an institution which is like serving their best interests. That's what in the service of others means in the conduct of this show, you know. So I love the novel. It had all these like double meaning phrases, and the show has very much taken that on board. One more thing on the topic of police mottos. What do you think of the police actually getting up and saying "quiz custodia" the custodian, whatever, "nos custodias"? I see them saying "who watches the Watchmen." We do. It's a bit stone cutters, isn't it? It's the yeah, stone cutters. Yeah, stone cutters. <laughs> Absolutely. Who keeps the metric system down? <laughs> uh, another another thing I just have to say: the music that we've um, hailed a couple of times. So it's by well, Nine Inch. The two men that are Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I think this is the best score they've done since the show Social Network in 2010, which I think is the best score of like the last 10, 15 years in cinema. It's just this score was popping like crazy. I loved it. And they're going to do three album soundtracks for the show. Every three episodes is getting a complete album soundtrack. So they're making that wow. much music. And yeah, I was absolutely loving it. It's Judge foreshadows his death earlier on. He says, well, it's my funeral. And then at the end of the episode, he's dead. So there you go. And also when he's, uh, when, as you mentioned earlier, the, uh, the way that the uh, police are sort of being treated as an audience to what's going on with the cavalry, then Judd steps out underneath them as though he's like the leader of the cavalry, which I assumed was going to be the reveal at the end of this episode. But... One more comic connection, the suicide pills, that's from the comic in there. Like, remember, Ozymandias forces one into the mouth of that fake assassin. So yeah, it's, it's fun to spot little connections like that. I caught that immediately. Um, Angela's password to her house is 1985, which is the year Watchmen is, of course, set. Holy but, shit. Um, what got nice me spot. was that on the on the panel that she types it into, there's it's a four-digit password, 1985, but there's five asterisks signifying the characters. So I don't know what the hell that was about, but I watched it and I was mm. like, wait, what? Something's wrong, so I round. And I don't know <laughs> if it's like an error. Is something going wrong with time? But yeah, it's yeah, interesting. Yeah, because that's one more number than 1984, which is what Redford's government feels a lot like. Yeah. <laughs> Real question is though: Were there any croutons? 